Thank you, Lord, that uh, you're gathered here with us, that we, we come together uh, knowing that, that you're coming together with us, Lord. We come together to just be caught up into, the, into you, into the, the fellowship in the Godhead, into the life in the Godhead. Lord, just thank you so much for your mercy. Thank you for revealing that your desire has always been for mercy, that everything you do is born from the, the compassion you feel in your heart for us and for our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we could just see uh, the new creation in light of your desire for mercy. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. I mean, what's the purpose of a new creation? You know, we could sit with the kind of uh, idea where we think that the purpose of a new creation um, was that God was so disgusted with the first creation that he's got to get rid of it and have a new one so he can now be happy with the, the creation that he has, right? But it, it's not about God being dissatisfied with the first creation that he made, but it's about God being grieved that the first creation he made is suffering at the hands of sin and death. And it's about him wanting to alleviate our suffering. And the way that he does it is he brings forth a new creation. And so we want to connect that kind of back to what we talked about last week. Last week, we, we talked about God's mercy being his, his tender love for mankind, that, that God saw his, his people, he saw mankind suffering at the hands of sin and death. He saw his creation suffering at the hands of sin and death. And then because of what he saw there, he prepared himself a body that he could offer up his own body to be broken for us, and that through that he could deliver his creation from corruption into the glorious liberty of his life, right? And there's a lot of, I don't want to say there's a lot, there is the fullness of all liberty inside of God's indestructible life. And if you're desiring liberty in any area of your life, if you're desiring freedom, and maybe not even just an outward thing, if you're desiring to feel freedom on the inside, the liberty you're desiring to feel on the inside, it's all wrapped up in God's indestructible life. Everything that can serve you with peace and freedom is wrapped up in his indestructible life, right? And building on the, the, the verse that says God desires mercy, I think is a powerful thing because we can sit with so many doctrines about what it is God wants or what it is God's after, or what is, what is his mind filled with. There's so many different beliefs and doctrines, especially in, in Christianity. I don't mean like in the world. I mean in Christianity itself, there's so many thoughts about what it is God wants. Like there's so many different views about what it is God wants, right? And with ministry, uh, many times we, we say things like, what's the vision for the ministry, right? What, what vision do you have for the ministry? And it might sound strange, but one of the reasons why I want to preach these, these two messages is I, I just want to present people with, with the thought of what is God's vision for his ministry, right? And that might sound strange because you might think, what do you mean God's ministry? What ministry does God have? Well, the only way anybody could even have a ministry at all is because God first has a ministry. And really, God's the only one with the ministry. Now, we could come along and we could see God's ministry, and we can give utterance to God's ministry to people, and so then we could also be participating in ministering or ministry, but the only reason why we can even have ministry today in the earth is because God first has a ministry, 
And God wants everyone to know that the vision for his ministry is mercy. It's mercy. Not pity. Mercy. You pity a, a creature that you consider to be less than you. Like we, Becky went to Winn-Dixie and there was a cat crying all of the time because the cat had gotten stuck in the red, the red box thing. And so the cat's just in there crying and crying and crying. It can't get out. It can't get out. It can't get out. Now listen, just to be biblically correct, what we felt for that animal wasn't mercy. It was pity. And the reason why is because the cat is not a human being. Neither do we see the cat as being an equivalent being to us. Well, mercy is a different kind of thing. Mercy is what you feel for a being that you consider to be of equal value to you. It's the kind of thing you feel when you see another being that you consider to be your kind or in your likeness or in your image when you see them and you see them suffering. So God's whole vision for his ministry is mercy. The foundation from where God's will is born in this earth is mercy. The foundation from where God ministers from is his desire to visit the brokenhearted with his tender love. That's his whole foundation for ministering to people. That's his whole foundation for their even being ministry. The foundation of his will in this world is his mercy. Now, out of his desire to heal the suffering in the earth, he brings forth a new creation where the power of death has now been abolished. That's what he does. Right? Now, there's a difference between death being destroyed and death being abolished. Right? Because we could read in the scriptures that death's been abolished, but then we still see death here. Right? Paul talked about the last enemy to be defeated is death. And he's talking about death being destroyed. Death being destroyed in the scriptures means that death no longer exists anywhere in creation. Like you don't see it nowhere. You don't experience it. And there's no way for it to come back in. Death being abolished is that before Jesus, death had power over us. We were held captive by the grave. And now after Jesus, because he conquered the grave, because he overcame death in the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, what happened is, is the power death had over our lives to take us captive has now been abolished, right? Death can no longer take me captive because death can no longer convince me God's not with me. Death can no longer come and tell me I'm a lamb without a shepherd, that I'm a lamb that's been left in the world being led away to the slaughter. Death can no longer convince me of that anymore because I see God with me in the resurrection. And that shined a light into my darkness. So the power of death has been abolished in my life. It can no longer sting my heart with fear. And so it can no longer take me captive to laboring and toiling to try to gather life unto myself. So death has been abolished in my life. And I'm seated right now with Jesus. And I wait patiently for the death that's been abolished. I wait patiently to see that death completely destroyed, where it's consumed to the uttermost inside of my body, and it's consumed to the uttermost inside of this physical creation, just like we see in the resurrection of Jesus. What do we see in Jesus when he was raised from the dead? The firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of a new creation. We see death completely removed from his body. So how will we know when the new creation has been completely brought to its fulfillment? It's when we see death no longer in our physical bodies and we see death no longer in this physical earth ever. Right? Now we're new creations now because heaven and earth have collided inside of us. We have the first fruits 
of being the new creation now because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The spirit of an indestructible life. The spirit of a life that can't die. The spirit of a life that will even raise me up should this world bring death to my house. Right? We got the first fruits of that now. Right? But all that, a new creation, everything that God's after in the earth with ministry, everything that he's after with his will for people's lives, everything that he wants for everyone is all born from the foundation of him desiring mercy for his people and mercy for his creation, which means it bothers him that we're suffering. He's not indifferent to what we experience here. It bothers him so much that he prepared a body for himself so he could offer up his own body to be broken so he could deliver us from this broken life here. That's why he does everything that he does. Mercy. Now regarding the new creation and how that's born for mercy exactly, we're going to pick it up in Colossians. Chapter 1, and we'll start with verse 9 and read there for a while. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this cause also, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You know how he said we desire for you to be filled with the knowledge of his will? Notice how we're just talking about his will? He desire, we desire for you to be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual understanding that that would cause you that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. Being fruitful in every good work means that you might be filled with peace and love and joy and kindness and longsuffering and meekness, the fruit of the Spirit. Because should you find your life filled with the fruit of the Spirit, you will find the good work of God manifesting out of you everywhere you go and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So it's talking about the first creation there. And it's talking about everything being created by Jesus by Jesus. And it says everything was created by him. It means everything came forth from him and it was for the purpose of declaring the glory of his life in the earth. That was the purpose, that everything that came forth would then shine with the glory of his life and thus declare his glory. Because when you see an indestructible life pouring out of every aspect of creation, it glorifies the one in whom that life came from. Everybody finds themselves looking around at this beautiful life and they're like, dang, my man, whoa, I see you, I see you, right? That's what Paul's talking about there. And he is before all things. 
and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. When, he, when, when Paul says that he's the firstborn from the dead, and we'll get into this in great detail, the context there is he's saying he's the firstborn of a new creation. When he says he's the firstborn from the dead, he's the firstborn of a new creation. And that means different than what we might think of born, and I'll get into that. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. That's all creation language that Paul's using there to discuss the preeminence of Jesus and how we know that God's will or his purpose is wrapped up and contained in Christ, that everything is contained in Christ. And notice when Paul says, who is the image of the invisible God? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus, he says, is the image of the invisible God. And then Paul says that Jesus, Jesus, is the firstborn of every creature. Now, when Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of every creature, it doesn't carry the same meaning we think of. Because when we think of the firstborn, like my brother, I'm the second in line. My older brother is the firstborn in our family. And we say firstborn, meaning that he has a beginning and that he was brought forth that he wasn't before and he is now. When Paul uses the term firstborn, he's not saying Jesus is a created being. Neither is he saying that Jesus didn't exist or that Jesus has a beginning and then he came into being. When he says Jesus is the firstborn, that's not what he's talking about. And if you keep reading in the context, he fills out what he means when he goes on to say that it's by Jesus that all things were created. And he says Jesus is before all all things. What that means is Jesus don't have no beginning point. Jesus is him that always was. He goes on to say that by Jesus, all things consist. So he's describing Jesus as the creator of the universe. That's what he's describing about Jesus. And so when Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, or the, the firstborn of every creature, what he's talking about is Jesus is the chief of every creature. That Jesus is that word of life from which every creature that exists was born. What he's saying is that Jesus has fathered all of creation. Everything that exists has come forth by the life or the power of Jesus. That's what Paul's trying to say. Okay? And there's a very real reason why he's making this point and why he's connecting him to these things. Paul goes on to say that, that Jesus is the head of the body. And carrying with what does it mean that Jesus is the head of the body using the born language, the firstborn language. What he's saying is just as Jesus gave birth to all of creation and that Jesus is the chief of all of creation, Jesus also gave birth to the church. And he makes an interesting comment now when he includes the church because he includes the church in the, the same breath of saying Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So when he says that Jesus is the head of the church, when he's the head of the body, he's saying Jesus gave birth to the church. He brought the church out of death. That's what he's saying there. He brought forth a people that have also been born from the dead. That's what he's saying. 
So Paul says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And he says the reason why Jesus is the firstborn from the dead is so that he would have preeminence over all things. And when he talks about Jesus having preeminence over all things, he's saying that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, that he could be the chief of a creation, that everything that exists exists by the power of his indestructible life. That's what it means, that he's the firstborn from the dead, that he would now be the beginning or the chief of a creation that would also come forth from the dead and that everything that would then come forth would be free from death, never to be able to die again. That's what he's talking about. The word preeminence, it's, it's interesting. It means to be the chief of something. And it doesn't mean to be the chief of something necessarily like we think of it. Um, it's referencing back, Paul. it's Paul's way of referencing back to Genesis chapter 1. You know where Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth? We tend to read a time connotation into that. Like we think it's talking time. But when you look at that in the Hebrew, it removes the connotation of time. And really what it says there is God, the chief of all things or God the source of all things that exist in heaven and earth is talking about God as the father of everything that exists when it says that in the beginning God and so Jesus the point Paul is making is that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and the reason he's the firstborn from the dead is so that he might be the chief of a new creation right Paul is making the point that just as Jesus was the chief of the first creation, that same Jesus that was the chief of that first creation, that Jesus entered into the death that was reigning over his creation so that he could be the firstborn from the dead. And in him being the firstborn from the dead, he could be the chief of a creation that's been brought forth from the dead into the newness of his life. He's trying to father a new creation now. And he's trying to father a creation that's completely free from death, where his indestructible life is all in all, where everything that exists only permeates with an indestructible life. And there's no more sin and death anywhere in creation. And so Paul's talking about Jesus entering into our death. That's why he talks about redemption by his blood. He's talking about Jesus entering into our death because he's the chief of this creation. But he doesn't feel happy on the inside that his creation is suffering at the hands of death. So he wants to deliver them from the corruption and the vanity they were subject to by the first man, Adam. And what he, how he's going to do that is he's going to enter into their death with them. And in him entering into the death of his creation, he would then raise or rise up out of the ashes, out of the grave. And in him coming forth out of the grave and being the firstborn from the dead, he's now going to be the chief or the starting point or the source of a new creation, one that's been completely liberated from sin and death and that can never be touched by sin and death again. That's the point he's making. When the scripture says God desires mercy, it could just as easily say God desires to bring forth a new creation. God desires to bring forth a new creation. And like we said in the beginning, not in the sense that he wants to scrap and get rid of the first creation, but in the sense that he wants to liberate his first creation from corruption. And so you want to sit and ask yourself, how would God liberate his creation from corruption. 
That's what Paul's getting at. And he's describing that dynamic. See, we've been so polluted with the idea that God's after fixing our behavior so he can be happy with us. But God understands the reason why there's so much, there's so many, uh, there's so much of the works of the flesh in the earth is because this earth has gotten it right to be corrupted with death. And so when he thinks of delivering us or bringing forth, quote unquote, peace and love and joy in people, he thinks about doing it from the sense of how am I going to liberate my creation from corruption, from the fact that they're dead in sin? How am I going to bring forth a new creation that has come forth from the grave that can never die again? That's what he's thinking of. That's what God's desiring when he's thinking of making a new creation. And so when you think of creation, if you go and read in Romans, it says that creation was made subject to vanity through Adam. By one man, Adam, it says we were made subject to vanity. Romans 5 says that by one man, Adam, death entered into this earth. That's the vanity. And God saw his man. He saw his creation was without shape and form. He saw there was darkness and chaos over his creation. He saw that we were groaning in travail, desiring for life. He saw all of creation was groaning in travail, desiring for life. He saw his creation being torn apart at the seams by the death that entered through Adam. And his mercy, his desire to alleviate our suffering brought forth a new creation. That's why he's bringing forth a new creation. He doesn't like it that you're hurting and he wants to bring it to an end. And his method for bringing it to an end is to bring forth a new creation. That's his method for bringing your suffering to an end. Okay? So when you think about a new creation, you want to be thinking of, man, God does not like it when I'm suffering. You, you guys that are parents, you like it when your kids are suffering? Is there any end that you won't go to to try to stop the suffering? Okay, then you know exactly how God feels. Right? When you, if your child's misbehaving or acting out, do you despise and hate them? Or do you see that something's bothering them and tormenting them and that's why they're doing it? It's easy. We, we discern the heart real easy when it's our kids. Right? But everyone else, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, everyone is God's kids. There's no one that exists that hasn't come forth from the loins of God. And so God sees into our hearts and he sees the problem for all people is the suffering that's in the earth at the hands of death. And he sees the answer is the way he can alleviate the suffering is if he brings forth a new creation completely free from death that can never taste death again. That's the same thing we see in the body of Jesus, who is the firstborn from the dead or who is going to be the beginning or the chief of a creation that's free from death. Right? Does that make sense? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, says it this way. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And when you go back, if you like to study the scriptures, you want to go back and read Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2, you can go read Hebrews 1. The author of Hebrews is talking creation language. He's talking about the same thing Paul was just talking about, the image of the invisible God, the express image, right? And so. Hebrews 2 says Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. If you keep reading in Hebrews 2, verse 14 says, For as much as the children were made partakers of flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise took part of the same, that through death 
he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. You see what he says Jesus came to destroy through his death? Does he say he came to destroy God's anger with mankind through his death? Who does it say he came to destroy? The devil. Who had what? The power of death. So many times, man, our Christian theology has been built on this idea that we were indebted to God. And we couldn't pay our debt to God. And so Jesus came and paid our debt to God. But the scripture right here says that Satan had the power of death. It's Satan that held us in captivity and bondage. It says that Jesus led captivity captive when he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Well, who do you think raised him up to the right hand of the Father? The Father did. And so it was about destroying the, the serpent who had the power of death over us. Satan held us in, the, in bondage, not God. And so Jesus partook of flesh and blood because we had been subjected to bodies that were built upon flesh and blood by Adam when he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says he took part in that same flesh and blood so that through death he could destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Now back to Hebrews 1, which is right before he says all this. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of God's person. It says all things are held together by the power of Jesus, by the power of his word, by the power of his arm, by the power of the life he has in himself is what it means that all things are held together by the power of his word. That's what it's talking about. And what it means there, if you go and look that up, in the Greek, and you, you go back to, I think, 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, it has a very similar saying. What it means simply is that Jesus bears all things upon himself, right? The, 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 the weight of creation is on his shoulders. It means he sustains everything by the arm of his power, by the life he has in himself. It's Jesus' shoulders that bears up the pillars of the universe. It's Jesus who preserves every creature in its being and supports it and supplies it with the necessities of life. What the author of Hebrews is getting there in the first chapter is that what it means is that Jesus is the spirit of faith by which everything was created. Right? He sustains all of creation by his life. But now there's a problem because his creation is made subject to vanity are subject to death, subject to corruption. So how is he going to sustain a creation that's now dead? How is he going to now provide the nutrients of life to a creation that's now dead? How is he going to resuscitate this creation back from the dead unto life? Seeing that he holds all things and bears all things upon the shoulders of himself. Seeing that he holds up the pillars of the universe. What's he going to do now? Because listen, his creation is now subject to death. Meaning that creation can come to an end. And so that's the foundation from where Hebrews starts building on Jesus, making himself a little lower than the angels for the purpose of suffering death. So Hebrews would be teaching, seeing that Jesus bear all things upon himself, seeing it's Jesus that sustains all things, that bears the pillars of the universe up, up on himself, Seeing it's Jesus that preserves every creature in its being and supports it and supplies it with the necessities of having life. 
seeing all those things are true about Jesus. It was fitting for him, seeing he wanted to bring his creation, his children out of death and make them partakers of his glory. It was fitting for him to then partake with his children in flesh and blood. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's describing the methodology by which Jesus is going to bear up this creation and administer an indestructible life to a creation that is now entered into corruption and is subject by corruption. Seeing that he's that which created all things, that holds all things together. And the creation that he built, that he gave breath to to begin with, has now been made subject to vanity. They've now been partakers of flesh and blood. It means that they've partaken of death. Seeing that his creation that he holds up has now partaken of death. Seeing that God is filled with mercy when he sees his creation suffering. It was fitting for this same Jesus, if he was going to now uphold the creation that was dying, it was fitting for this same Jesus to partake with his children in flesh and blood. And he made himself a little lower than the angels for the purpose of being able to partake with his creation in their death. We play Marco Polo, not Marco Polo, I don't even know the name of the game. But when we were teenagers, we'd get in the water, the beach, the ocean, the pool, and we'd play battle, chicken. I think we called it chicken. And we'd get people on our shoulders so the person on the top could play chicken person on the bottom couldn't do it. Now, in order to get them up on our shoulders, we had to first get under them and then stand up with them on our shoulders. So the author of Hebrews is talking about how is Jesus going to bear upon his shoulders again a creation that's dying, that's dead. And it was fitting if he wanted to bear a creation that's dying on his shoulders, the shoulders of his indestructible life. It was fitting for him to now partake with his creation in the vanity, in the corruption, in the death that they were in. That in him standing up out of that death, he could now become the firstborn from the dead or the chief of something that could bring forth his creation out of death. You see what I'm saying? That's the purpose that he, he's making. Because man, partakers of flesh and blood, again, we, we've talked about this a lot, and this can be a lofty thing that you don't have to understand if you don't like. But when it talks about mankind made partakers of flesh and blood through Adam, it's talking about mankind partaking of death, right? Our bodies didn't have blood in it till Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in fact, when you study the medicine behind it, blood is the result of bones working to serve the, the body with life, right? So blood came in when Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His bones began working to produce something that could sustain his life. We're not going to have blood in our bodies in the new heaven and the new earth because it's going to be the spirit that sustains us. We're not going to need oxygen. Right? We're going to have the Holy Spirit that is all things. So because mankind was partakers of flesh and blood through Adam, it became Jesus, from whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in order for him to be able to bring forth many people out of the grave unto the glory of God, it was fitting for him to likewise partake with his creation in flesh and blood, in corruption, for the purpose of suffering at the hands of death. That's what he's saying. Maurice brought this up in the Bible study, and it was so good I had to, the men's Bible study, it was so good I had to throw this in here. 
where you're talking about Jesus making himself a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. If you go and read Judges, the account of Samson, right? You could say a lot about Samson, but I just want to highlight this part that Maurice brought up. If you go read Judges 16, verse 29 and 30, and I'll read it for you. It says, And Samson took hold of the two pillars upon which the house stood, and on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand, and of the one with his left hand. So this is how he would have looked. Like this. Samson. Okay? And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Jesus, because his kids partook of flesh and blood, also took part in the flesh and blood with them. Let me die with my people. Right? And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. Do you know what's interesting about the last? I mean, there's a whole lot of interesting things here. But Maurice pointed out something that's really interesting is it said that he slew the dead. It doesn't say he slew the living. I'll just read it again. So the dead, the dead, which he slew at his death, were more than they which he slew in his life. <laughs> so now it talks about Samson slaying the dead or death. Now Samson is a real man, right? We can look at things allegorically and not eliminate the fact that they're real historical accounts. So when I reveal Christ in these verses, don't confuse that for me saying that I don't think Samson was a real man. Samson was a real man. The account in the scriptures is the account of a real man. Now, because the spirit of the son came upon this real man, what happens is, is his life testifies of the Christ. And that's how it went down in the Old Testament scriptures. The spirit of the son would move on people and then their life would testify of the Christ. And that's how it happened with Samson. So Samson pulled down the Philistines in the Philistine system of death onto himself. He drew their bite of death onto himself. And in drawing their system down upon himself, their death upon himself, he brought the whole system down, is what it says. That's what it says. Now listen, Jesus came in the likeness of what was revealed in Samson. Samson's arms were spread apart on the two pillars. Here's Jesus' arms on the cross. And what pillars is his hands on? His pillars are on the hands of the prince of this world and the prince of this world's system of death. And he sees the death there. And he comes to slay the death that is reigning over his creation. And what he does to slay the death that's reigning over his creation, remember, Jesus said that he's going to be lifted up. And he's going to draw all to himself. And I know we read so many different interpretations into those verses. But if you read the context, Jesus goes on to talk about the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness on the pole. And he says, just as the serpent was lifted up in numbers, I will be lifted up and I will draw all judgment to myself. Now, when he talks about judgment, he's talking about the condemnation that comes from the serpent's bite, which is death. And so when I am lifted up, I'm going to draw all of the death that my creation is now underneath onto myself. I'm going to bring it onto myself. And just as Samson brought that system down and collapsed it, I'm going to collapse that system onto myself. That's what Jesus did with his arms stretched out on the cross. He pulled down the death that had power over his creation onto himself. Onto himself he pulled it down. 
Now, he's not just like rolling the dice. Let's see what happens. We only look at Jesus functioning as a man. And he is the son of man. And there's a lot of power in seeing that. But there's a whole other section of what Jesus is doing that is born from him. I'm the creator. I'm the one by which all things exist. I'm the chief of everything that's here. And so there's things he's doing as creator in order to liberate his creation out of the vanity of death and deliver them into the glory of his indestructible life. And that's one of the things he's doing. There's creator on the cross, pulling down the system of death onto himself because his children, his creation, had been made partakers of corruption through Adam. There he was partaking in that corruption with his creation as creator, and he pulls that death as creator down onto himself. Alpha and omega. That's alpha and omega. He is the beginning, and he's making himself the end now. The end of what? The end of creation ever being subject to death again. He's making himself all in all. He's making himself the chief of the creation that's going to come forth in the newness of life that can never be corrupted by death ever again. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning of creation, and he is the ending or the fulfillment or the final manifestation of the creation he wanted to make in the beginning. And not even death could keep him from doing what he desired, which is that he would be all in all, which means his indestructible life would be the only thing that could be seen in all of creation. That's what he wanted from the beginning. But now his creation is subject to vanity. Well, how is he going to bring him out of that? He's going to enter into it. He made himself a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, it says. He submitted himself unto the same death that was tearing his creation apart at the seams. He brought the weight of the death that was tormenting his creation down upon himself. And he did it to slay that death and now bear upon himself and his own life the weight of a new creation wherein only righteousness dwelt. That's why he did it. He can't bring forth the creation that's dead in sin, that only has righteousness in it, unless he first enters into that creation's death. And then from the place of entering into their death, begin to minister to a creation that was dead, an indestructible life. Thus, once again, bearing upon his own shoulders and his own life the weight of a creation. But this time, a new creation, one wherein there is no sin and death anywhere. There's only righteousness. All that for what? Not because he likes mathematical equations. And that was a really complicated equation to write up on the board. All of that because his heart is filled with tender love when he sees his people and he sees creation suffering at the hands of the death in this world. That's why he did it. That's why he took it down upon himself. He was bringing it to, he was bringing the creation that was dead in sin to an end, that he might give birth to a new creation that is free from sin, never to be able to die again, just like we see in the body of Jesus' resurrection. 
Paul said, likewise, just as Jesus was raised up from the dead, never to be able to die again, likewise, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Which means reckon yourself to be dead to the death that's in this world. You know why so many of the things that happened the last couple of years bothered us so much? Because we were reckoning ourselves alive to this world. We were seeing ourselves as braided together with the corruption here. Instead of seeing ourselves as braided together with the incorruptible, indestructible life that we see in the, the body of Jesus' resurrection. This isn't semantics, right? And it's not like, well, this sounds nice, so I'll do it this way. God wasn't like, well, this sounds cool. This will give a lot of theatrical effects, right? We want to make a good movie. This will make a very good movie. Let's do it. No, this is the only way that it could be done. The only way Jesus can be the chief of a creation that is born from the dead. Remember, it's a creation that's dead in sin now. And the only way he can be, a be the chief of a creation that's born from the dead is if he becomes the chief of that creation that's dead in sin. And the only way he can do that is if he dies unto the same sin that they were dead unto. And so he enters into that. That's the only way, as if he first enters into the death that was reigning over the first creation that he brought forth. And so he entered into his death-torn creation. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's what it's talking about. He came in a body that he prepared, that the Father prepared. He came in a body that was perishable flesh. He came as the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary. So his life came from above, but his body came from the earth. And the reason why his body came from the earth was so that his body could be given up to be broken by the death that was breaking his creation. But now, the life that he had inside of this perishable body, it wasn't earthy, it was heavenly, it came from above. So now when the body that he has that is perishable breaks under the weight of the death, there's a life inside of that body that's unbreakable. <laughs> And now he entered into the death and became the chief of the creation that's dead in sin. And so now when he stands up out of the grave, free from sin, free from death, never to be able to die again, he becomes the chief of a new creation, one that's brought forth in the power of an indestructible life, one that's brought forth in the newness of life. You're a new creation. Death has been abolished in you. Heaven and earth have collided in you. Your body may be perishable, but the life that you have inside of this perishable body is from above. It's from the Father of lights himself. In that life that you have in this perishable body, do you know what it will do? It will raise you into an indestructible life. Hallelujah. Jesus didn't count it as robbery to give himself up for death. Why? Because he desires mercy. He wasn't thinking of himself. He wasn't thinking of what he would go through. He was thinking of the suffering of his creation. And so he didn't count it robbery to humble himself unto our death. He gave himself over to the suffering of our death knowingly and willingly because he wanted to give himself up to the same death that was bruising his creation. So that in him becoming the chief of a creation that's dead in sin, he could now minister his indestructible life to that creation that is dead. Mm. It's about him administering life to the dead. It's resuscitation. He's the ultimate lifeguard, right? 
where he sees that we've drowned at the hands of death. And now he jumps in to save us, to resuscitate us with his life. But how can he bring us back from the dead unless he enters into the dead too? Jesus says these things in the scriptures. John 12, 24 says, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. He's talking creation, man. And he's talking about him bringing many sons and daughters into the glory of his indestructible life. And he's talking about liberating all of creation from the vanity they were made subject to in Adam. And he's saying, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it will abide alone. Unless I can now die, how can I be the chief of a new creation? Because the first creation's dead. The only way I can bear much fruit or bear a new creation that's built upon an indestructible life is if I die. A corn of wheat is a grain of wheat. It's a seed, is what it is. You know, a seed, it has life inside of it. And then it falls into the ground and it dies. The shell dies. And the life that's inside of that seed then does what? Grows. And it starts to bear fruit. Listen, man, Jesus is God's seed. He is God's life. He is the incorruptible seed that contains God's life. Well, unless Jesus could enter into the death of his creation and come forth from that death, he would abide alone. He would abide alone unless he could enter into the death of his creation. He would abide alone. He wants to create creation in the likeness of his incorruptible life. The only way he can do that is if he first entered into the vanity, into the corruption we were made subject to. That's why he says, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it falls in the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about how he's going to bring forth a new creation that's free from the vanity and the corruption that came into the earth by Adam. That's what he's talking about. Glory to God. Hebrews 7.16 says it this way. It's still building on Jesus as the creator of all things and the creator of a new creation. We read so much about Jesus as the high priest, and we've only thought of it as pertaining to our individual sins. That Jesus had to perform something to deliver us from our individual sins. And I don't say that that isn't part of it. But Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And he comes as the high priest to now do something that could liberate all of creation from the death that entered by one man, Adam. And his primary purpose as the high priest is to bring that about. To where he delivers or perfects the world from the death that entered by one man, Adam. That's his primary purpose there. So Hebrews 7.16 says it this way about Jesus, that Jesus was made high priest, not by the law of a carnal commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. I'm going to say that again. Jesus was made high priest, not by the law of a carnal commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Endless there means indestructible. 
when you look it up. It's by the power and indestructible life. Now, the law prophesied of Jesus coming as the high priest. And so it set up high priests according to the carnal commandments in the law. But the author of Hebrews comes and says Jesus was not made high priest according to the law of a carnal commandment. He was made high priest according to the power of an indestructible life. And really one of the things the author is getting at there is that the law could never bring about God's desire. It could never produce God's desire. It could only prophesy of God's desire. And so none of the earthly high priests that were made high priests by the law of a carnal commandment could ever bring about God's desire for mercy. They could never do it. And we'll see why they could never do it in a, se in a second. But it's like Paul saying in Romans, I think, 8, where he says God did through Jesus what the law couldn't do. He says he condemned sin in the flesh. He conquered death in our bodies through Jesus. And he says the law could never have conquered death in our flesh because of the weakness of our flesh, right? Meaning, how can our flesh conquer death when our flesh doesn't have an indestructible life? Now, in the same way, all the high priests in the Old Testament that were high priests according to the law of a carnal commandment, they could never accomplish God's desire because they didn't have an indestructible life. All they could do was prophesy of the one who would be high priest and that he would be high priest according to the power of an indestructible life. And I think what we want to understand, guys, is that there was a very specific purpose for the high priest, the position of high priest. You can think of it like the position of a company. When you're hiring somebody for the position of a company, it's a very specific need you're trying to fill, right? You're not just like, well, let me hire anybody. Like, you want to look at their qualifications. You want to see, can they perform the task? You want to understand, do they have the skill set to do the things we need to be done? We're trying to figure out how to be able to hire somebody to manage all the technology stuff because it's a disaster for me to try to handle it, right? Well, we're not just going to hire some guy off the street like me because I spend 14 hours a day trying to figure out and I don't get anywhere. We're going to look for somebody with a very specific skill set. It has a very specific qualification. So you want to think of God, allow me the poverty of this earthly example. You want to think of God needing to fill the position of high priest. And you want to think about this high priest has to be able to perform a certain duty or a certain uh, task. And so he's got to have a certain skill set to be able to fill the position. He's got to have a certain qualification. Now, what is the job description of high priest? What is the job description of the high priest? The job description of a high priest is to minister the things pertaining to God's desire. That's what a high priest was. They were a minister of the things pertaining to God. Well, we started last week and led into this week talking about what are the things pertaining to God. God desires mercy. And so a high priest... The only way you could actually fill the position of high priest, the only way you could actually qualify to be the high priest is if you could actually minister God's desire for mercy. Well, out of God's desire for mercy, what does that look like? Alleviating the, the suffering your people are experiencing at the hands of death. It looks like you being able to comfort people from the affliction they're experiencing at the hands of death. And so what that looks like, if you're going to be high priest, you got to be able to bring forth a creation that's been perfected from sin and death. you got to be able to bear up a creation that's dead in sin upon your shoulders. 
and not just bear them up on your shoulders. You've got to be able to bear them up and minister something to them where they could be free from or perfected from death, never to be able to die again. That's the only way you could accomplish God's desire for mercy. It's the only way you could minister mercy to God's people in God's creation. You'd have to liberate them from the death that's in the world. And so the reason why we know Jesus is high priest is because he was declared high priest on account of the indestructible life he has in himself. Because that's the only thing that can give mercy to people suffering at the hands of sin and death, is if they can have an indestructible life ministered to them. That's what will comfort you. Carnal commandment can never administer God's desire for mercy. Only the power of an indestructible life could administer God's desire for mercy. That's why Jesus is high priest. He's a minister of the things pertaining to God's desire to serve his people with mercy. And the way that he does that is he's a seed. He comes as a seed. He comes having a life inside of a shell. And that shell is made in the likeness of flesh and blood, corruption, because his creation is in corruption. And now the way he ministers an indestructible life to a creation that's in death is he enters into that death with them and then that outer shell is broken and out of that outer shell comes oozing out of the seed an indestructible life. And it brings him forth out of the grave as the firstborn from the dead and the chief of a creation that will also be brought forth from the dead never to be able to die again. That's why he's high priest. Does that make any sense? We only think of Jesus as a man because we're human beings. And there's, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not disesteeming the revelation of Jesus as man. I talk about it nonstop. But one of the problems for the church is they struggle to see Jesus as God. And they struggle to connect with God's heart by seeing God in his face. Right? And so we create these doctrines where we talk about the cross not from the perspective of God being filled with mercy. We talk about the perspective, we talk about the cross from the perspective of God being angry with us because we were bad little boys and girls. Well, you could never think that the cross was about God being angry with us if you saw that was God himself on the cross. Immediately that whole narrative would switch and you'd begin to start thinking, what is the God of all glory doing coming into the earth in absorbing my sin and my death into himself. Well, all of a sudden, your view of his heart starts changing. And you start to see that his desire, his will, is to shower you with tender love. And not just a one-time tender love, a complete inoculation with his tender love that inoculates you from the death and the corruption that's in this earth. That's what he wants to do. He wants to administer mercy to you. And the way that he does it is he enters into your death. So out of that death, his indestructible life can ooze forward onto you. 
And then that indestructible life now raises you from the dead, never to be able to die again, never to be able to be touched by death again. Now all of a sudden, your suffering has been alleviated. You're receiving comfort from the affliction you see in the earth at the hands of death. And you're knowing God is God. Because if God is your God, that means he's the one that will serve you with comfort. And do you know how he serves you with comfort? He enters into your death and then blows it up from the inside out. And then he stands up out of your death, having had that seed, which was a corruptible body, broken in half, and the life that was in that seed, pouring out and building a new creation, one that's built in the power of an endless life. And now there's a new creation that's going to walk in the newness of life, never to see death again. I love what John says in, in Revelation. Even so, even so, we know we, even though we know we have a certainty of that, that this creation will be liberated from death and we'll never see death ever again. Even so, even though that comforts us and fills us with patience now, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> and when we say come quickly, Lord Jesus, we're not talking about wanting to be delivered from this earth. We're talking about wanting to see death completely removed from this earth. Right? That's his desire for his people and his creation. It's to come under the administration of his indestructible life. He wanted his indestructible life to be the rock that is the foundation of all creation. That's what he wanted. Well, because of Adam, his indestructible life was not the rock that was the foundation of his creation. So how is he going to now become the rock of a creation that's dead? By him dying himself. Right? Paul says it this way in the Colossians, and we'll finish with this little thought. He says, Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, that he might be all in all. All in all. And what that means is, is that his in, the indestructible life he has in himself would be that which permeates all creation. That that would be the only thing you see in creation, is an indestructible life. That's what Paul means that he says that in all things, Jesus would have the preeminence, that he would be the chief of everything that exists and that all of creation would be made conformable to the indestructible life that manifested in the body of his resurrection and ascension. It's about making creation conformable to an indestructible life. He becomes the life that is in everything that exists. Well, right now, there's some things that has a life that ain't from above. He's not all in all right now. But he's the chief of even a dead creation. Right? That he's going to bring it forth out of the grave. Hmm. Creation. You can see the gospel in, in God creating. And you see the gospel from the perspective of God as creator. And you start to see that God wanted to bear much fruit. And when God wanted to bear much fruit, he wasn't thinking about getting a bunch of people to act in line. He was thinking about having a creation that his life is the only life there. Right? And he saw the only way I can bear much fruit now because the first creation is dead in sin, as if I die also. 
And if I die also, I will become the first or the chief of a new creation that is born from the dead. (laughs) And that's how I'll bear much fruit. Hallelujah. Right? And now you start to just think about a God who wants to sustain his creation, not a God who demands things from his creation. Right? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you that you bear our lives upon the shoulders of your indestructible life. Thank you, Lord, that even when we were dead in sin, that you entered into our death, that in standing up out of our death, you could now administer to us an indestructible life. Thank you, Father, that uh, your desire for a new creation is the manifestation of your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that everybody could hear about what you've done to make a new creation, and they could just experience the loving kindness in your heart, the tender love you feel for them. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. God bless you guys. Have a great day.